Hey, everybody. Welcome. We're in the backstage of Disrupt TV, and we're going to have an opportunity to interview our guests, talk to them, see what's going on. But it's been a very, very interesting week. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar, our producer, L, And of course, we've got some amazing guests here. So we're going to talk in reverse order. Introduce yourself. Tell us where you're coming in from. And more importantly, a quick little blurb of what we'll be talking about. Michelle, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. I'm Michelle King. I'm calling in from London in the United Kingdom. It's really cold here, so I'm going to do my best to stay warm throughout this interview. And tonight we're going to be talking about why how we work matters more than just what we do. So we'll be discussing that today in more detail. We'll stay warm with warm conversations on how work works. Thank you very much. And of course, we'll talk about that topic. Also, we've got two amazing guests here. Scott, Jacqueline, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about? Hey, we're calling in from Manhattan today. Uh, we're Scott and Jacqueline. We are the co-founders of the 100 Coaches Agency. We're also the co-authors with Marshall Goldsmith of a book called Becoming Coachable. It's one of the last books that will get to be called a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Uh, so we, we got that, luckily. And that's a lot of what we'll be talking about today is the importance of becoming coachable. I know. Amazing. I can't believe what's going on at the Wall Street Journal, but more importantly, congratulations uh, on your success there. And of course, Hugo, what are you coming in from? What are we talking about? Hello, hello. I'm calling in uh, from South Florida, um, and we're going to, I'm the Chief Product and Technology Officer at UKG, and we're going to talk about a bunch of things happening in Gen AI and the HCM space, and there's plenty to talk about. I hear it's sunny in South Florida. People keep rubbing it is. In. So it's like we booked ended with Michelle in the cold. I'm in the warm, and we got uh, you know New York right in between, I guess. <laughs> well, with that, we're gonna kick off the show. L, back to you. All right, three, two, one. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on X at Disrupt TV Show. Send us and our guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's, all, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, my co-host, Ray Wong. Uh, Ray's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Ray's a regular television, business, and tech news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC. I see him on TV every day. Ray's one of the most influential futurists on X at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with Bala Afshar, the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of his new book, which is called Boundless. I don't have his book with me. I feel bad. Uh, but of course, it is a bestseller in Amazon. 
And more importantly, it's a very, very important book talking about where the future of flow and future businesses are headed. But executives around the world follow every one of his inspirational tweets, his insights. And of course, when he's not speaking or not presenting at events at Salesforce, you can find on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and of course on ZDNet for his insightful analyses. But as we always say, it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests. And who do we have to kick it off today, Vala? It's our privilege to have Hugo Sarazin, who serves as Chief Product and Technology Officer at UKG. UKG is the world's leading HCM cloud provider of HR payroll and workforce management solutions for all people. In his role, Hugo is responsible for ensuring UKG delivers on its product vision of helping every organization become a great place to work for all through technology designed for people. Hugo is also responsible for UKG's technology technology organization, technical organization, including design, user experience, product management, engineering, cloud operations, security risk, and digital services. Prior to UKG, Hugo managed McKinsey and company's business technology practice in Silicon Valley. He co-founded and led both McKinsey's digital lab and digital design and served as senior partner and member of the global executive committee. You can follow Hugo on uh, X at H-U-G-O-S-A-R-R-A-Z-I-N. Welcome, Hugo, to Disrupt TV. Well, I'm excited to be here. You did your research. You grabbed everything I ever did. The only thing I'm missing is a book, and then uh, we'll be you know, having fun. <laughs> I have to shorten your bio because you've accomplished a lot. We only have 20 minutes. Okay, very good. <laughs> well, hey, we're really, really happy to have you here. And and one of the big things that's happening is really Gen AI, and we've all been talking about it. The consumerization of Gen AI is really what caught the attention of boards, executives looking at that possibility. But consumerization of technology and the enterprise are really two different things, as you know. Um, what does it mean? And how do you take this into the enterprise in a safe manner, a scalable manner, and one that makes sense, that drives business value? Oh, it's a great, great, great question. Listen, um, this Jenny, I think, you know, is uh, 50 years in coming. Um, we've been doing AI for a long, long time. I don't mean we UKG. I mean, just like it's been around. But uh, in the last year, uh, about this time last year, when Chat came out, uh, it captured the imagination of, of people. It, it made it very, very easy. And the interface was... Uh, was so, so uh, intuitive that, you know, people um, really jumped on the bandwagon and, and saw what could be done. But that, in many ways, what we saw at that moment in time was a consumer experience. And when you begin to think about applying similar technology, and you can in a B2B context, in a business-to-business -business context, you need to live with the realities of large uh, organization um, and there's a few um, you know the first one is there's there's privacy concern <laughs> there's security concern there's uh, adoption concerns uh, you need to embed it in your processes um, all of these require you know at some level a, you know a whole host of new capability and that's uh, something that has been done this is this is a new technology disruption an important technology disruption but we've had others in the past so people have a playbook uh, and everybody in, in the software space, I mean, we're going back to those playbooks, we're adapting them to the reality of Gen AI, which is different than SaaS, it's different than the cloud, it's different than mobile, it's different than when the internet came, but a lot of things are similar and you really do need to focus on making it safe, you know, data residency, privacy, process and value capture. And Hugo, how does it 
how does this new technology, as you mentioned, I mean, OpenAI was founded in 2015, but for us, most of us, maybe not for you, as because you're a super technologist, and maybe not, definitely not for Ray, but for a lot of us, the realization of what OpenAI can do is about a year ago. Uh, and we saw like in two months, 100 million people were actively using the prompts and trying to get answers to questions. Uh, how is this going to impact the human capital management space? Uh, talent, management, payroll, how, how will this impact how businesses run? I think it's huge. I think it, it is huge. First of all, AI has been used for a while. I mean, just here at UKG, um, you know, we've had it um, you know, more than five years. We have models running using classic AI to do predictions. Um, right now in production at any given time, north of 2,500 models are running. But when you introduce the generative part and the transformers, um, now we've we've opened up the world to new possibilities, and that's pretty interesting. You can go uh, and and think about a different interface, a different way for uh, the end users or the different personas that are supposed to engage with HCM to uh, interact. You may not need to remember all these menus. You may be able to in the future, very soon, to interact and talk to uh, your, your, you know, your payroll provider and ask uh, it uh, questions about, you know, what's, how much 401k room do I have available and, and just talk because it is able to infer from the context, from the question uh, and go get the right information from the right place. So that's one example. Or you can um, move into uh, creating a wonderful shifts uh, that are based on skills that are known or inferred or declared so that, you know, if you're a frontline employee, like we have a huge shortage of nurses, it's really hard to get nurses. So you need to be able to assemble amazing schedules for nurses. Well, that's hard work. It's hard work and, and it, it requires a lot of involvement from an individual. But now if you can infer a lot of that and propose a bunch of a schedule uh, that meets the needs of the employee at work and on the personal front, now you've just opened up the possibilities. It's pretty exciting. Or you, I mean, inferring skill is going to be a fun and creating learning journeys, all that kind of wonderful stuff. We're going to see a very different human capital world uh, based on this and based on a bunch of other things that we now can do. So you have an optimistic view in terms of generative AI helping with, like, for example, regrettable attrition in organizations. Absolutely. You can use the technology to improve the employee experience and retain your best talent. I mean, I'll give you a, a regrettable attrition is a great example. Um, you know, there are signals that employees um, yeah. are generating all the time about their degree of satisfaction. Uh, some of it is through the employee surveys that you do on a you know semi-regular basis in most company, but also just you know, if you're late on your schedule all the time, if yeah. you you know if, if you don't show up the way you're showing up. Um, if you, uh, you know, don't uh, have regular mentorship meeting with your boss. Mm. I mean, like you can kind of begin to assemble a, a composite picture of things that individually on their own may not be sufficient, but collectively give you a signal. And then if you provide that signal in context to managers, hey, I've noticed you haven't spoken to person X, person Y, person Z, and by the way, um, this person's been in the role for a long time. People typically expect to 
you know, be moving. And, oh, by the way, here's in this role, here are the kind of skills that people have. Now you prompt, you nudge, you encourage the manager to have a conversation, you give them information to facilitate that. I mean, you not only identify regrettable attrition, but now you've given in context a manager a whole host of tools to deliver a better employee experience. I love that. Vala, I think it was my LinkedIn update that gave it away. I, I, I you know, hey, there's a lot of unstructured, there. unstructured data that can totally yeah. speak to your tone and sentiment for sure. You know, yeah. I, you know, I, so I did, I did a domain registration. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, available for work. <laughs> yeah, right, right, work. right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The new video. Those, those subtle hints that managers. Something. This is Tom Peters, twenty years talking about managed by walking around. The fact yeah. that UKG software can give you those signals and empower the managers to proactively engage. I mean, I'm, I think we're, there's going to be a war on attrition. And if you're not leveraging technologies to keep your best talent, you're just not going to be able to compete. Sorry, Ray, go ahead. This, this oh, is no, a no, huge I, topic. I believe this is a huge I, I, topic. I totally agree with you. And it's actually <clears throat> happening on the blue collar side, not on the white collar side, which is totally. actually really interesting. It's totally. uh, on the trades and everything. But hey, that's that's an important piece because people want to use AI to differentiate. They want to use AI to actually create opportunities they never would have had before. And when we think of AI, like we, we see it in cost takeout. We see it in compliance. We see it in operational efficiency. We see it in revenue and growth. We see differentiated business models and we see an experience. What are clients asking you about in terms of, you know, how do they differentiate or how do they even get to the point where they can use AI to differentiate? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, uh, AI can do all of the things you just mentioned. So it becomes very quickly uh, overwhelming. Uh, and then we do uh, serve, you know, multiple segments. We serve the SMB, we serve the mid-market and we serve the large enterprise. We do it in the US, we do it internationally. So the answer you know, varies a lot. Uh, there is the very sophisticated large enterprise that have lots of data, have AI science or business uh, analysts and people who are, you know, very uh, agile. And they, they're, they're asking sophisticated question, level two, level three, level four questions. But you do have, you know, the vast majority of this uh, middle market. I mean, these folks are seeing what can be done on these you know, consumer facing, and they're saying, what can I do internally? And I don't have an AI scientist. I don't have these PhDs. And I know I have data, but I don't really know where it is. And my IT guy, last time I checked, was overwhelmed, and, and, and he's got a backlog of things. Um, so I'm not sure where to start. And I'm afraid if I don't have something to say, my competition will have something to say. Oh, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's kind of a bit of a, a feeling of there's a lot going on. Uh, and then the first thing, at least in the conversation I'm involved is to kind of help people understand what is the art of the possible today. Make sure that they understand the difference between B2C and B2B um, and, and, and encourage them to put in place some basic policies in place. You can't and you should not use in a business context, the B2C application. You are putting your company at risk. And unfortunately, there's a lot of that going on today. People are doing performance review, copying it and putting in chat GPT and Bard and doing all sorts of silly things. And you kind of go like, don't do that. This is, you know, um, you know, is, is very, very problematic. Um, so helping educate and familiarize people with what is, you know, just basic stuff. And I think is one thing. The next one is getting to the talent. You know, there's a huge need to get to the talent. 
The third one is skills. You know, like what are the skills? Help me bring the skills forward and and and, and facilitate learning journeys. And there's so many wonderful things we can do to help employees grow. So those are just sample examples. And I'll tell you my, my last favorite one. And at HR Tech, I literally had a CHRO like, give me a big hug. He was walking around <laughs> and he was completely overwhelmed. He says, everywhere I go, everybody's talking Jenny I. Everybody. And I just don't know where North is anymore and what's real and what's not, what's hype and what's and he says, like, tell me, tell me what you, you guys at UKG are going to do. Uh, I have the tool. I love the tool, but now I want to know. And I said, listen, um, there's plenty of fancy stuff, but let me kind of start you with some basic. Do you have an HR policy? The guy goes, yeah, I got mm. an HR policy. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you have a benefit policy? Yeah, I do. And I said, okay, do people call you all the time? And are you answering a bunch of questions? I said, yeah, yeah. I said, okay, well, I'm going to make it easy for you to take your own policy, consume that in a Gen AI way, and make it available to your employees so that you in HR can kind of like offload that. And by the way, I'll make it in a tiered way. The first level will be the specific answers that are based on your documents and your information and your choices. If you don't have an answer there, we'll fall to a backup, which is a aggregation that UKG provides because we have models that take advantage of known practices and we'll make it clear that that comes from you know not your specific policy but typical policy and if we don't find anything we'll default to you know the LLM that is available you know publicly and make that available and he was so happy he says just give me that just give me that it will save me so much work and I can build trust with my employees about using AI, oh, yeah. I can show value to my CFO, I can show value to my CEO. I think it's important that your talk, your answer to raise questions spoke about jobs to be done, things you should consider with generative AI solutions and things you shouldn't consider. Like for example, you know, feeding a public LLM with employee performance review material. Um, Come on, we all need some help. Yeah. Um, so why, Hugo, why is it important for business leaders to be radically transparent when it comes to their AI plans, not just with their employees, but perhaps with all stakeholders? I think it's really, really important. I mean, I've been around and I think all three of us have been around quite a, uh, quite a number of years in this tech space. And, and, you know, we should have learned, you know, these different technology cycles have shapes and form. Um, and uh, we should have learned from the history that, you know, to there, there's an incredible amount of hype. People get all excited and say all sorts of things. There's going to be another body of group that will arm themselves with doomsday scenarios. Everybody's going to lose their job. We're all going to be replaced by Gen AI robots and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and you know, it's hard to know what's real and what's not real. And employees um you know are not experts they don't spend their days thinking about this and then the, the the in many organization trust is fragile is often broken by based on previous decisions that are made so i think as we want to introduce this gen ai technology it's very important to you know do it in a way that makes it clear that you know there is there can be benefits there can be ways where this is going to be rolled out. And, and by the way, it's already there, right? There are versions of AI, you know, Siri, your Google Translate. I mean, it's there. You're using it every day. Like, let's every kind day. of like take this apart and then let's not 
uh, uh, demonize. Um, and then, by the way, there are you know uh, roles and jobs that will be really transformed. In many cases, back to your point of jobs to be done, which is a fabulous framework, uh, you can also you know be a bit more precise and go after task. And then when you make the case that it's tasks that are getting transformed, people can say, ha-ha, my job's getting enriched. I'm going to get on board with this, and I'm going to help shape it. And I think that's part of the reason being transparent, bringing people along is a very, I think it's a win-win-win for everybody. Hugo, we're all going to figure out when uh, we do full intelligent AI and automation to remove some of the medial, remedial tasks and the menial tasks that are actually really hard. We're going to figure out when we augment the machine with the human just in case so we get the high levels of precision. Uh, we understand the exceptions and why people do things differently and break rules so we can actually adjust and make course corrections. And we're also going to think about when we actually augment the human with the machine to make our lives easier, right? And then at some point, we have to decide. This is going to be the hardest problem. When do you actually deploy a human? When do you have the human touch? And when do you want that human touch? And that's part of that experience design. And I know you know that going through your work at McKinsey and other places, it's a very, very touchy area. So Hugo, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, it's been amazing hearing uh, your views on Gen AI and the work that you're doing. We've got Hiro Sarazin, CPO of UKG. You can follow him on Twitter at Hugo, S-A-R-R-A-Z-I-N. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Lots of nuggets of wisdom. Oh, he's a big uh, brain, man. He's a big brain. No, no, he is. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. For sure. But Speaking of big brains, Ray, big we, have brains. Two best -selling, we have two best-selling authors with us next. <laughs> it's our privilege to have Scott Osman and Jacqueline Lane, CEO and president of 100 Coaches and best-selling authors of Becoming Coachable. So important. Jacqueline Lane is the president of the 100 Coaches Agency and co-designer of their proprietary curation process and relationship-first philosophy. Jacqueline has been with the agency since its founding, and it's a critical pillar of the 100 Coaches community. Jacqueline comes to the world of executive coaching through her previous role in the energy industry and lifetime commitment to improving the lives of all people by elevating the quality of leadership. Scott Osman is the founder and CEO of the 100 Coaches Agency and co-designer of their proprietary curation process and company's relationship philosophy. In his role as CEO, Scott established a vision for the company, uh, leads partnerships and business development, and serves as a leading light of the 100 Coaches community, which he co-founded Marshall Goldsmith, the other co-founder, uh, the co-author of this amazing book, in 2016. Scott is also the co-founder of Methods by 100 Coaches, the online leading platform. Welcome, Jacqueline and Scott, to Disrupt TV. Thank oh. you so much, Bala and Ray. It's so good to be here. Great to be here with you. Thank yeah, you so we're really excited to have you. And it's amazing, amazing book, right? I mean, this is really one of the things that people are all trying to figure out, uh, especially as they're advancing through their career, understanding what's next. Um, and so uh, you've set up a bunch of pillars. And I thought it's a great mm. place to start as a framework. What are some of those pillars of being coachable. I'm going to start. I'll start. Uh, well, you know, so we um, just a, a little background on the book. So uh, we we formed the Hundred Coaches community about seven years ago. Uh, it's now made up of 400 of the top leaders, leadership thinkers, and leadership coaches. Wow. Three years ago, uh, we created the Hundred Coaches Agency, where now I think probably the one of the most elite agencies for executive coaching in the world. Yes. Um, and about um, a little while ago, we started looking around and we thought about, you know, what is it? We talk a lot about what makes a great coaching relationship, right? How, is, how does 
how do you get great outcomes? And Marshall loves to say the great way to get a great outcome is to have great input. Um, and we looked around as, is there anything that helps people become better coaches? A lot of stuff around coaching, but better coaches. And there wasn't. So we polled all the members of our community. Um, and it really distilled down to what we call our openness framework. Um, and the very first pillar, as you were calling it, the very first pillar of the openness framework is being open to change. Because let's face it, if you're not open to change, if you can't see yourself making changes through coaching, then we would say, save your money, save your time, don't bother. Yeah. Because coaching is all about change. And, uh, you know, the, the world of leadership is changing so much. Uh, it used to be the case, you know, Marshall, with this seminal book, what got you here won't get you there. I think it's maybe yep, 15 yep, yep. years ago now. Um, that talks about how as you go up through the world, you're a functional leader. And then all of a sudden you get into the role of true leadership which is very, very different. And today, even leadership itself is changing dramatically. So everybody who wants to become coachable has to be open to change. The second pillar is being open to feedback. And this is similar to what Scott was saying. If, you don't, if you're not open to feedback, then probably the coaching process is not for you. Save your money, uh, save your time, because you know leaders today are recognizing that they don't have all the answers, right? The, this narrative of the leader on their, you know, is this lone wolf and, someone who can stand alone and has all the solutions and all the answers for their team, that's that's a notion of the past. We really have to be constantly listening to the feedback and the ideas and inputs of people around us in order to make any of the adjustments and changes, be agile. Uh, so being open to that feedback, uh, it's just a natural yeah. part of the coaching process. Yeah. And being open to change and open to feedback, like bravo, you've done great. Uh, but the third pillar is something that people get hung up on also, which mm. is the willingness to take action, being open to yeah, taking that action. For action. Like yep. It's all great that you like, I want to change. And yes, give me that feedback. But now comes the time you have to actually be willing to take action. A great coach will help you do that. But you also have to be open to that. Yeah. And then, of course, the final pillar is then being open to accountability. Uh, and accountability might be an uncomfortable word for people, uh, but accountability is all about creating lasting change. It's not enough if you only take those actions uh, once or twice. You have to take those actions consistently. Uh, for an athlete going to the gym, you have to simply do the reps. Uh, and a coach is a great mm. accountability partner mm -hmm. who's going to help you make those changes permanent uh, and be the kind of intentional leader that you want to be. That's amazing. That's, uh, what's stunning to me is you two stand in front of the most powerful men and women leaders, titans of the industry, um, and they're asking for your guidance to, to change and improve themselves and be accountable. Um, how often do you, how quickly do you realize that this person is not open to change, open to feedback, and perhaps not accountable? I mean, because they're, because they're so successful, they've reached a some of these folks you coach and advise have reached the pinnacle of their career. So I, I'm just curious, how often do you refund their money because you realize they're not going to, they're not going to change? <laughs> well, well, fortunately, our screening process is pretty good. So okay, awesome, awesome. Out before we begin. <laughs> um, and it does happen. You know, every so often we'll be in a situation, we'll have our first discovery call to hear what the person is, what they're looking for out of coaching. Uh, and if they say things like, well, actually, if they say things like I used to say, because uh, you'll, if you read the book, you'll, you'll read, I was not always coachable. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. Like life is good. I'm like, everything's working well for me. Uh, there's nothing really that I think I need to change. Uh, that's a sign the person's not really ready to be coachable. Uh, now, there are ways around that. For example, um, 
uh, what you can think about if you if you feel like things are going really well. Um, one of our coaches has suggested that that is a self-limiting belief. Right? Whatever you think well is right now is the limit to your threshold of how high you can go. And one of the great things that coaching can do to help you is to say, you know what? Change doesn't always mean fixing something. Change often means expansion. Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah. Another thing, <laughs> another thing that we hear often is people say, well, I have other people in my life and in my organization who mm -hmm. need to be coachable or who yeah, need coaching. I'm, I'm doing okay, but other <laughs> hey, people. I like the divert. I like the divert. It's awesome. You're doing really great. You know, hey, my discovery here could use your help. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But and yeah. That, that's, I love getting to say, mm, well, you know, if you can think, if you can see some of the ways that other people in your life need to grow and change, uh, maybe maybe think about if how easily they can see areas where you need to grow and change. So. But, but, but sometimes the impetus is as simply as, you know, the board or your boss thinks you mm. need to change. Maybe right, you right. want to rethink that, right? Because you know, I think it was uh, Coach Wooden, the greatest college coach of all time, who mm -hmm. said great, great coaching is about giving feedback without causing resentment. And that's just imagine you two, again, in front of the most powerful people on earth and, and the amount of graceful feedback and compassion and humility and that's required for these, again, titans of the industry to... To, to recognize maybe there's an inflection point in their career where they need to change. Yeah. Uh, so I just think that you do incredible work. And Thank you. I, I, just, I just, it's, it's, sorry, Ray, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no problem. I'm, I'm just thinking about this. It's, you know, this, this ability to get to, you know, I don't know, people need different opportunities to be able to be coachable. And I think you guys talk about that. Uh, and, and where do you, how do you build that kind of framework? Because we, we just walked through a couple of examples where, you know, people, typically are told by the board, you need an executive coach, right? They see that as a sign that they're about to be removed from the startup that they founded, or mm -hmm. that there's some kind of resentment in the board that says, oh, someone brought in the coach. What do we do now? Right. And they feel threatened. Right. Yeah. But if it's part of the normal process where people, everybody is getting some level of coaching or some level of training, right. Then it, then it actually works. Right. But in your case, coaches need coaches <laughs> as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, and, and you think you're on the right path, but you know, it's, you're doing such an amazing service for coaches and coaching because like a lot of times it's like, Hey, something changed. We have to actually do this differently. Or the next group or the next generation is viewing this as a different kind of opportunity. Let's talk about there and start there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, such a great point, Ray. I mean, the world is changing rapidly. The demands mm. on leaders are, you know, extraordinary. We have globalization, we have new technologies, we have all kinds of disruption in our supply chains, you name it. All of these things are, are happening that require us all to evolve and to change. Uh, and really the only way to do that or is through the help and support of other people. Uh, if we think about our own lives, most of the notable experiences that we have, all of the ways our minds have been changed has almost always started by being in relationship with other people. And coaching is an extraordinarily powerful relationship that creates a lot of positive change and helps you have more positive relationships with all the people around you. That's part of what makes it so powerful. But I, I love your point that coaching is, does not have to be viewed as this remedial exercise. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, we think coach, being coachable and having a coach is one of the greatest signs, uh, uh, you know, modeling growth. Uh, it's a sign of respect for the people that you lead, saying, I want to be better for you. Uh, it does not have to be seen as the, in this threatening light. And I think that's been uh, 
really the amazing work of Marshall Goldsmith over the last several decades. Yeah. I think a lot of the time also, and the example that you gave where the board says you need a coach and maybe, you know, maybe you're the founder and the board's, um, the board is what the board is saying in our opinion is we want to invest in you. Yeah. Right. We think there's more here and a coach is going to help you bring it, bring that out. Because one of the things we know is the leader has the least access to certain kinds of information of anybody. Right. When you're in that top leadership position, you're not getting all the information that you need from your direct reports who you could fire um, or from the board who could fire you. And so um, with a coach, you have access to kind of information and awareness that can really help you do the job that you want to do. I love that. Uh, I just listened to a, a, a lecture from a Stanford professor who talked about behavioral modeling. And if you want to model a culture that's open to change, uh, he talked about authenticity, observability, and repeatability. So when you see your boss has a coach, now you're observing commitment to continuous improvement and excellence. So you're now ho hopefully more open to the idea of, 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 of being coachable. Or so, why don't so, I have a coach, right? You're going to want a coach too. I, I, I thought I was your coach. No, no. Yeah, <laughs> sure. yeah, yeah. Ray's going to replace me with, a, with an algorithm very quickly. So yeah. I need to be careful what I say. Uh, one one <laughs> of our favorite stories, by the way, is uh, the story of um, Hubert Jolie, the, uh, the famous uh, you know, CEO of Best Buy who got into Best Buy, Best Buy was on, you know, on the rails, right? They were expected to go bankrupt like everybody else in that category. Uh, and he recognized that he, although he had had a storied career, uh, he didn't have the answers to how to solve the problems of Best Buy. Uh, Marshall was his coach at the time. So we have some good insights and, and Uber loves to talk about it, but he went out into the front lines and he said, you know, look, I'm Uber Jolie, I'm the CEO of Best Buy and I need help. And I need help from you, frontline workers, to tell me how to fix this company. Um, yeah. And it worked. Help me. I love it. This magic. is the Brene Brown show. Magic. That was this phrase. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, but it takes a beginner's mindset, tremendous humility. Um, so are the, is success the biggest barrier for being coachable? People are just too enamored with their own journey. And <laughs> what, what are some of the barriers for people uh, becoming coachable? Yeah, I, certainly, as Scott said earlier, one's own success can become mm -hmm. a limiting belief in a way. Uh, mm -hmm. But there are some of the other things that we often see in leaders is defensiveness, uh, mm -hmm. you know, shooting down every idea, um, not thinking that someone needs to change. You know, another word for that might be arrogance, right? You know, believing our own press. Some of Marshall's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, of course, addresses some of that. And, um, and of you know, perfectionism is another challenge. Uh, fear of change. Well, and like you were saying, the in, the unwillingness to listen to feedback. You know, someone gets their 360 and they're in denial that the messages that they're receiving on the 360 they just aren't they aren't you. Um, that's a big barrier to coaching. That's amazing. Have you changed your style of coaching over the years in terms of, yeah. I mean, you have a 400 member community, so you must, and these are like extremely accomplished people. <laughs> so you're getting feedback constantly from an army of successful people. Has that changed the way you coach today compared to maybe five years ago, 10 years ago? Oh, certainly. <laughs> we are blessed to be in community with so many amazing mm. thinkers, uh, authors, coaches. Uh, and so absolutely, we are getting that feedback constantly. We're trying to practice what we <laughs> preach here. Yeah. But again, you know, part of us writing this book was recognizing that we ourselves have not always been coachable. 
Uh, and so it became that process of learning what goes into that and how can we model that. Uh, mm -hmm. And so certainly as we become more and more coachable all the time, uh, we're continuing to grow and evolve ourselves and our own styles are evolving uh, very rapidly. Yeah, I think also the, the art of leadership is changing fairly dramatically. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if I go back 20, 30 years, leadership was very much a directive. Um, and now, uh, I think you were mentioning earlier about Gen Z. Uh, a number of the CEOs that we talk to, they're worried about how do they lead Gen Z? Because Gen Z doesn't want to be led the way previous generations were. They want to be included. They want to be considered. Um, and that requires a change of leadership style. Uh, and that change of leadership style is requiring us to think, how do we help leaders become more heart forward? Mm. Right? How to, how to think about, as Uber says, heart count, not head count. Wait, right? oh, pendulum's not, the pendulum's not swinging I, back the other way. Wait, what do you mean? Yeah, sorry, Ray. Command <laughs> 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 control structures and centralized authority. And yeah, you know, we're, we are seeing new types of leaders emerge. And, and let me flip it around the other way. Um, one one really valuable aspect I've heard from people on, on, on coaching is really the, the connection to the network. Right, you guys are building an amazing network yeah. of, of, of not just leaders but peers and other resources. And you know, it, it's very, very hard when you're at the executive letter to confide in people or to talk to other folks, right? And and you guys talk about you know th this need to transform leadership, but also the life aspect. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that if there's you know without revealing any kind of you know uh, information about in, in, in unique individuals, but mm -hmm. that life aspect often impacts your work aspect. Oh, absolutely, it does. You know, um, without naming any names or giving too many examples, of course, we have seen marriages saved, uh, partnerships mm. saved, nope, people's nope. companies mm -hmm. have been turned around. Uh, and, and all of this, you know, very much impacts all of us because our work and our life is more mixed than ever before. Yes. Uh, and being in community is one of the most powerful um trends, you know, if you look, young people today are talking more and more about community. People are looking for that, um, you know, these deep connections and the ways that we can grow and evolve from one another. Uh, and I think that's part of what we wanted to talk about, too, in, in our book, Becoming Coachable, is how can you be coached by all the people around you, not just from an official coach mm -hmm. or someone you've hired, but if you are in community, if you have relationships with other people, those people can serve as an unofficial uh, board of advisors or unofficial coaches to you uh, and can help us all to grow and evolve and live much more fulfilling lives. And, and thinking about the new style of leadership that we were referring to, um, that new style actually makes people, makes leaders better people. Right. Um, and by being better people, they're actually better spouses and better parents, uh, better friends. Uh, their life is in more balance. Uh, because really, you know, I think the, the previous idea of a leader who gave it all to the company and had this sort of devastated life around them is an ancient idea. And the new ambition, and we talk about this in our book, is a great leader creates human flourishing. And flourishing starts with themselves, right? If they don't have a fulfilling, balanced life, then how can they create it for the people around them? And the people around them are going to include the employees, the people in the community around the company, uh, as well as shareholders. Uh, and that's the kind of new leaders that we are trying to help come into being. Some amazing work. Scott Osman, uh, Jacqueline Lane uh, from 100 Coaches. This has been an amazing book. Congratulations a lot. Instant Wall Street Journal bestseller wow. in September. And of course, That's please awesome. get the book on Amazon. Look forward to catching up with you maybe in New York. So 
Congratulations. Thank you. Great Thank you so about. much. Yeah. Thank you. Such an important skill to have. Stay teachable, stay coachable. Uh, given the I need a coach. I need a coach. I'm realizing this. <laughs> so. we, we may need, well, that's why Let's we have another up. segment. We have another segment because we have an amazing big brain best-selling author to come and close the show for us with hitting a grand slam. Dr. Michelle P. King, author of How Work Works. Dr. Dr. King is a globally recognized expert on inequality and organizational cu culture. Based on over a decade's worth of research, Michelle believes that we need to learn how workplaces work so we can make work for everyone. Michelle is a host of a popular podcast called The Fix. Uh, Michelle is the author of the best-selling award-winning book, The Fix, Overcoming the Invisible Barriers that Are Holding Women Back at Work. Her second book, How Work Works, the Subtle Science of Getting Ahead uh, uh, Without Losing Yourself, which was released just in October. Michelle's an award-winning speaker. She's spoken over 500 events globally. Michelle's a senior advisor to the UN Foundation Girl Up campaign, where she led the Next Gen Leadership Development Program, which enables young women to navigate and overcome the barriers to their success. You can follow Michelle on X at, oh, she must be an early adopter. She got the whole Michelle P. King, K-I-N-G. Welcome, Michelle, to Disrupt TV. Hello, thank you so much for having me. And I'm a New Zealander, so I was dying at that intro. I was like, just kidding. <laughs> uh, you're too kind. It's lovely to be here. Great to have you. You know, hey, I really like your book because what it does is it weaves together the cultural dimension. It weaves together a ecosystem story. It weaves together, you know, that that need for awareness and understanding that that's often missing uh, in global business. Uh, so I'll start with the question was why, why will it no longer work if we're using the career playbook from before that allowed your boss to advance to the top? What are, what are we missing? Like, you know, in Asia, does it mean like I have to donate my liver to get to the top in, you know, other countries? Do I have to just work a hundred hours a week? Like, you know, what, what am I missing here? So you know what? That's, that'd be a great book. That'd be really short, right? Donate <laughs> <laughs> Instant um, bestseller. It's a little bit of what both your authors or, sorry, previous guests were talking about or touching on. So I'm a researcher, full transparency. I have worked in corporates as long as I've been researching and been in academia. And so everything I'm sharing today is not my opinion. I don't actually have a lot of wiggle room for opinions. This is really just facts. So the, the world of work has changed. And whether it's AI sort of changing about 44% of the tasks we undertake over the next three to five years, whether it's the diversification of talent globally with workplaces becoming more diverse, or the fact that, you know, we're in this hybrid context, or even the fact that workplaces are becoming less sort of hierarchical. In fact, only 14% of CEOs believe that traditional hierarchy makes any sense today, where we've got to make decisions quickly and we have to collaborate. All of these changes actually point to one really important thing, which is that how we work is way more important than just what we do, because 83% of people have to collaborate with others in order to get mm. their job done. That's a really big statistic. So if you think of the industrial era and what your previous guest referred to as the old world of leadership, you know, in the 1950s, you could arguably go to work, just do a task, go home, right? Today, you cannot do that. When you go to work, you have to work with other people. And the amazing thing about this is even when it comes to AI and the rise of sort of the need for digital skills across all sectors, that is coupled with an increased demand across all industries for advanced social and emotional skills. 
And when we think about it, you know, with the diversity lens, what we find is workplaces are becoming more diverse, but they're also becoming less inclusive. And that's because people don't know how to bridge their differences with others, work across different cultures, right, which requires advanced social and emotional skills. Hybrid world of working, very hard to do, right? Very hard to collaborate, very hard to problem solve and create in a hybrid setting. It just is. I love hybrid working just as much as the next person, but all the data tells us it's isolating. It can be very, it comes at a cost, right, to a person's level of fulfillment. So you have to have advanced social and emotional skills to navigate that. And then we also see in this increasingly ambiguous informal world of work, Again, the number one skill set that you need is advanced social emotional skills. So for me, what we've got to recognize is our ability to work together to understand the informal side of working life is absolutely critical because workplaces are going one way and that is informal. So to master this new normal of work, you have to learn how to navigate the informal. And that's why a lot of the old rules don't apply. Yeah, please expand on that. You've written about the informal and the formal rules of work. And for our audience watching, Dr. King has, I think, north of five degrees. So all of the shared wisdom is based on deep research. So what are the differences between informal and formal rules of work? I need to get out more. I really do. Um, <laughs> so, so the difference, you know, I hate the term rules. I use that because... Hmm. In the old world of work, the 1950s hierarchical command and control world of work, you know, there were set norms for how people engage. So I'll give you a quick example, which is informal networks. So in the old world of work, you typically had people in leadership positions who were white, middle class, heterosexual, able-bodied males, and they networked with other white, middle class, heterosexual, able-bodied males, and they had a very closed network, right? And that worked for them in that structure. Today, what is the worst thing you can do in terms of, you know, future-proofing your career? Having a closed network made up of people who all look alike, right? Because workplaces have become more demographically diverse and are set to continue by 2044, half the population in America is going to be made up of people from typically underrepresented groups, right? Just as an example. So the worst thing you can do is have a closed network made up of people who just look like you. You have to diversify your network. In fact, one HBR study found it's almost the single most predictive factor when it comes to career success is a diversified network. So we have to look at, you know, how are we investing in building relationships with people who don't look like us? How are you even managing your informal network? And I'm sure we'll get to that in a minute. But that's a really good example of where some of these old ways of working don't work today. The problem is most people don't know it. So a lot of the research, there's one study by Bain, shows that in 97% of organizations, a lot of leaders are still leading in that dominant, assertive, aggressive, sort of closed network, exclusionary way. And I think there's a real reckoning in corporate America with it. We've seen it with the stripping out of a lot of mid-level management roles. And that's one of the forecasts in my book that's said to continue. We're going to see a lot more self-managing teams and you're really, to lead in this new world, you're going to have to learn how to do things differently. Yeah, no, that's very insightful. And, and one of the other things I noticed in the book was really this notion of reading the air. And it's it, it's an interesting balance. And, and I want to just delve deeply into it because, I mean, companies come with their cultures and they've been built over time, right? And sometimes you bring different perspectives, uh, but it's how you introduce those perspectives or share those perspectives that bring and make 
bigger, stronger cultures. And, and that, that's the assimilation process in a lot of places. So you think in the UK or Canada or you think Australia, New Zealand, and, and of course in the US. Um, that same process happens as well in corporations. Talk a little about that, reading the air, and then you know what that means. So I think one of the challenges somewhere along the way, I don't know when it happened exactly, but it became a little bit uncool to care about work, right? So there is this sense of, I'm just going to go into work, do the bare minimum. I'm going to be myself. I don't really care where it lands. And what we've forgotten is we are our workplaces. Next to sleep, work, whether we like this or not, is where we spend the most number of hours over our lifetime, right? Our ability to derive meaning and fulfillment from our work environment actually makes up a huge proportion of our life satisfaction. And so reading the air in other cultures that you actually talked about, they refer to it as things like reading between the lines of what someone's saying, reading the room, all of that points to a level of self-awareness, a level of other awareness that people can cultivate through specific practices, which I'm sure we'll get into in a minute, things you can do to build that, to manage the impact your behavior is having, to care. The, the, the nice watch example is, was great. I mean, it's perfect in Japan. And it's amazing. So in and different countries, to your point on culture, have different degrees of this, right? Japan's super advanced on their ability to read between the lines of what a person's saying and doing. And there's a great example of a Japanese businessman who's sitting in a meeting and the client's like, hey, nice watch. And he sort of looks at it and then starts talking about where he went and bought. But actually what was happening in that exchange is the client was trying to say, hey, hurry up. Let's move on. Let's move on. A lot of my American colleagues will say, well, Michelle, why can't you just be more direct, right? Just give it to them between the eyes. Just say, hey, hurry up the meeting. I've got to get going. And I think what we miss is it's all about managing the impact, right? Sometimes recognizing how you're coming across, taking care with that kind, telling the truth with the level of kindness is one way to manage the impact is to help an individual. So I think for me, this brutal world we're in actually erodes collaboration. We think it makes it easier. It doesn't because you're not helping the other person to save some face. You're not softening sort of the way in which you're communicating. Absolutely be direct but do that with a level of kindness, right? And I think the challenge is also if you're not cultivating self-awareness, you're never going to pick up on the cue from the client, right? And that's the challenge is 95% of people lack self-awareness. Sorry, 95% of people, according to an HBR study, believe they are self-aware, but only 15% of (laughs) people actually are. So one five, right, if people actually are. And interestingly, to your coach's point earlier, the higher up an organization you go, the less self-aware people are because they have a sort of lower rate of diverse, honest feedback, right? And so the least self-aware person in an organization arguably is the CEO. So in academia, we call that the CEO disease. And Mm -hmm. what that looks like is somebody in a meeting not even caring to check the time to think, hey, have I run over, right? So we've got to care enough to start to manage some of the impact our behavior is having. I think it's a superpower to to be self-aware. So what advice do you have for people who think they're self-aware, but they're not? Um, How do you you build that muscle? Um, How do you read the room? I feel like the second, third time I read a book, I start to read between the sentences. And I get more out of the book, but mm-hmm. it's because the second or third time I I, I I I start the journey with more interest 
because I found the first read to be interesting and now I'm looking for more clues. It, so is there a way for people to adjust their mindset so when yeah. they're in a meeting or they're presenting, they're, they're a bit more self-aware? Yeah, so I'm going to get people to do something weird. Do we all up for doing something weird? So I want you to take your index finger, right? I'm not okay. going to – we're talking about in the context of self-awareness. I'm giving the answer right here. But I want you to draw the letter E on your forehead in capitals, right? Okay. So typically, a person who lacks <laughs> self-awareness, research finds, will draw the letter E facing themselves. So anyone who's watching this, go home and do this tonight. Oh, I like that. Okay. <laughs> and typically a person, and you don't frame it in the context of self-awareness, because where you just say, hey, draw the letter E in capital on your forehead, right, using your index finger. <laughs> Do it. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out if it was reverse image or not, right? You know, I, like can, they, they, I, I like V. I, I like V because I, I think I did it the right way, but I can't tell because I'm looking at the reverse image. Oh, that, that's why I'm also like that. Um, so, one way to build self awareness is to recognize most of us don't have it. And if we have it, mm. it's only because we're actually doing something to cultivate. It's a practice, right? It's something like a marshmallow like test. A bank. You build up your self-awareness and you've got to maintain the money that's in there, right? And so the problem is in most organizations, given most of us lack self-awareness, you either fall into one of two categories. You're either what we call an overestimator. So where you think, hey, I'm like having such a positive, disproportionately positive impact on everybody or an underestimator. Now, if you have one overestimator, and I want everyone to think of who this person is on their team, because we're all thinking of the person. Not that hard to find out. Yeah. <laughs> if you have one of those on your team, it reduces your team's performance by 50%. Yep. Wow. 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 Right? And that's because the person is like, hey, you know what? I don't want to hear it. I'm not managing the impact my behavior has. I'm going to be myself. I don't care how that lands, right? It's not about being yourself, it's about being your best self and, and showing up in a way that demonstrates care for the people that you're working with because we are our workplaces. And so I think what we have to do is recognize self-awareness as a practice. How do you develop it? Two ways. The first is a research study showed if you take 15 minutes a day, one five, and you can do this when you're showering, when you're walking your dog, doesn't matter. And you ask yourself, what questions? So what worked? What didn't? What could I do differently? Just reflect on your day. Ask yourself those three questions, right? Five minutes on each. Hey, what worked? What didn't? What could I do differently? You do that for a period of 10 days. You're going to increase your self-awareness by 23%. Now, some people will be like, Michelle, it's only 23%. But think about the compounded impact of doing that over a 20, 30, making that a sustained, habitual practice, right? And I do this. I promise you I do this. So when I leave this session tonight, I'll be thinking, hey, what worked? What didn't? What do I think I could have done differently? Right? And that's how I've become a Nothing. Student. You're awesome. So far, total <laughs> awesomeness. We're, we're really bad coaches. You, you, there's I'm nothing not else an overestimator, well, I'm not an overestimator. So recognize that while that might build your self-awareness, how do you know? So when I give talks on my first book around inequality at work, I'll ask leaders, hey, who's inclusive? They all shoot their hands up. What evidence do you have that that's correct? Because the data tells us it's very unlikely you are. So what we have to do is recognize that you've got to somehow balance that view of yourself, your lovely 15-minute reflection with evidence. 
So what that looks like is making sort of informal feedback a regular practice. So feedback, like don't get me started on feedback. We make feedback so weird. We wait till the end of the year. Then I tell you all the things that are wrong with you. You're crying. I'm crying. No one wants to do feedback. Go and do it, right? <laughs> when you leave any, think of micro feedback, right? Every time you leave a presentation, a meeting, something that really demonstrates how you're doing your work, not just what you're doing, turn to the person next to you and say, hey, what do you think worked? And then like, as you pass someone else in the hall, hey, is there anything you think I could do different? So you ask them the what questions. And that gather, you gather that data, you look for themes and you think about what can I do to close the gap between how I'm trying to show up and how people are receiving that. And the important thing for everyone to remember is don't go down the rabbit hole of asking why questions. So don't do the whole thing of why does my boss hate me? Because you're going to answer that with a biased lens. Again, no evidence, right? Wrong conclusion. So just stick to what questions and you'll start to build that self-awareness. I was going to ask, why am I not inclusive? And why am I not coachable? And why am I not self-aware? <laughs> exactly. I, I, love the, I love the fact that collaboration can simply start with four words. What do yeah. you think? Like, that's just, we need, we need definitely more hey. of that. Before we go, I really want to talk about informal networking. I thought that was a very important part of the book. Um, yes. There's something we can quickly talk about and, and talk about how, how we even do that. can. It's a big topic. Um, so I know. I, I know. It's like such I a have, big topic for another time. I've got five practices I want everybody okay. to know, right? Five things I want you to do. So informal networking for my introverts out there, I don't want you to panic. It is not about cocktail hours. It's not about handing out business cards. Don't worry. Right? I'm an introvert. I know no one's going to believe this, but I am. And so it's not that, right? An informal network, introverts. What I want you to do is I want you to get a piece of paper and I want you to write down anybody you go to for informal information on what's going on in the company, what's happening with your job, anything that's not a formal comms channel. Like okay. how do you get an understanding of what's going on, right? Then I want you to write down anybody you go to for advice. So advice on your job, on your career, on anything that's happening at work. And then anyone you go to when you're having a bad day. So for support, right? Social support. That list is your informal network. Now you might have one person that does two or three different things. That's fine, right? But that list, and we're going to work through this now on the session, right? You probably didn't think this is what we're going to do, but we're going to do it. So you've got your list, and now I want you to look at that list and look at how different or similar are people from me on that list. Ah. Why is it different, different or similar? Hey, Val, so you're on all four. Typically, <laughs> all my extroverts need to listen up. If you're the person who's doing the introducing, it's very likely your list is made up of people who are similar to you. Because we're like people who are similar to us and then for we tend to introduce, right? So what you actually need to do is be very, very cautious around how do I diversify my network? So you two, I'm different from both of you. You might think, hey, Michelle's worked at Netflix. She's worked at the UN. She might have some good contacts. How do I now bring her into my informal network? So hmm. what the data tells us is the best way to grow your network, if your network gives you access to informal information, advice, or support, Paying it forward is the way to grow your network. So it's not handing out the business card. It's reaching out to me and saying, I don't know, hey, you've just had your book out. I've just read it. I wanted to share my thoughts. Or, hey, you know, I left a review for you. And I'm paying it forward is the means to connect. Now, don't make it gross. Don't do the thing where it's like 
quid pro quo, right? That's not how it works. It's showing the other person, hey, I'm a good person to know because I'm going to engage in what we call mutually beneficial relationships. Now, mm. I want you to go back through that list and research finds were pretty good if you look at your list in deciding if someone should be somebody's worthwhile to get to know or not. It's actually the people in the middle that we have a hard time with, what we call ambiguous yeah. relationships. So 90%, nine zero ninety percent of your anxiety at work is caused by five percent of the people in your informal network so my advice about that yeah actually exactly for step three make sure you're not investing in those relationships right don't spend your advice support on what we call ambiguous relationships because you're going to have your interaction and spend a huge amount of mental and emotional energy trying to work out what just happened do they have your best interests at heart so a mutually beneficial relationship is someone where you have a sense that they could or they do they've actually demonstrated they have your best interests at heart by paying it forward giving you access to information advice or support the final two things to think about is when you look at your network, you want a really good mix of what we call sort of strong versus loose connections. So a strong mm -hmm. connection is someone I meet every day, your best buddies at work, right, who give you that no, social no. support. The problem is 80% of jobs aren't advertised. And I know some people dispute these figures, but they're still pretty high, right, regardless. And 70% of all jobs come through informal networks. Yeah. And they come through the more loose connections, right? So my job at Netflix, a great example of that, like it was someone I knew who then said, hey, I thought this job might be good for you. And finally, you want to think about what is your role in a network? So we know in a network, the most powerful person is a person who connects people to other people, right? And I do this all the time. So I, somebody actually was interviewed by someone on a podcast. She mentioned she wanted to find a speakers bureau in London. I was like, hey, I'll connect you to such and such. Awesome. Why is that powerful? Because it shows your network you are somebody who is mutually beneficial, right? You're going to support people. Yeah. So you want to think about making sure you occupy different roles in your network. Don't just be someone who gives your network information or who maybe just introduces groups to each other. Try and occupy that central role. That's very, very awesome. cool. We are so very out of time. I'll be East Coast Direct. I am so sorry. We could have spent hours with you. Oh, we're here with Dr. Michelle P. King, author of How Work Works and Harper Business Publication, available as of October. And you can get it, of course, on Amazon and where books are sold. Uh, follow her on X at Michelle P. King. I'll keep saying Twitter, but that's just me. So, <laughs> thank you for being on the show. Happy Friday. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Wow. Big brains. Amazing show. Oh, my God. <laughs> big, big brains with a technology at the beginning of the arc of the narrative of this episode and then coachability and a great lesson. Networking is about unselfish giving and benefit, mutuality of benefits. Uh, that's how you maintain uh, long-lasting connections. Ray, your thoughts on the show? Yeah, you know, I think we really were talking about work and the dimensions of work this week. And, you know, you can see what's happening, how AI is changing those interactions. My bot's going to call your bot and, you know, you're going to have to manage my bots differently, right? But my bots aren't coachable, right? I'm coachable, right? Maybe I'll coach my bots to be coachable, but we're going to see this really. I mean, that coachability factor is important. Leaders are really struggling uh, to really find uh, those uh, the ability to actually can reconnect and they're fine struggling internally to be able to talk to each other. So I think I see that as well. And then of course, 
you know, we've got some great advice as to how to actually work within ourselves. So uh, definitely a great ish, you know, episode and future of work uh, and about how working has changed for everybody out there. We could have, we could have talked to all four guests for the entire hour. Um, it's it, my, it it's it stinks that disrupt is only an hour long, but it is what it is. <laughs> Please read their books, connect with them. They're all accessible. They're all social, and they're all available to you. Next week, Joe Corbin, CEO of JumpMind, Margaret Hoke, three-time CEO, chair, board member, and author of Tech for Good: Imagine Solving the World's Greatest Challenges, and Rick Horworth, author of Strategic. The skills to set direction, create advantage, and achieve executive excellence. If Episode it's Friday, 45. 45. Ray, we're about to cross 1,100 guest interviews. Uh, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next week. See you next week, everyone. We'll see everyone in the green room.